This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Squiggly Careers podcast. This week, I'm not joined by Sarah, but I'm not too disappointed because I'm instead joined by Matthew Syed. Hello, Matthew. Hello, thanks for having me on. Before we get started on today's topic, which is all going to be around cognitive diversity and Matthew's book actually taking a lot of insights from Matthew's book, Rebel Ideas, I just wanted to focus in a little bit on Matthew's career, which is the perfect example of a squiggly career. So we've got uh, jobs that include uh, broadcasting, journalism, author, ping pong champion I mean it's brilliant I thought maybe rather than charting the whole of your squiggly career because I think it might take a while with all all of the different things in there maybe we could focus in for everybody on a squiggly career high and a squiggly career low if you wouldn't mind Matthew oh that's an interesting question if I I think the low is a very easy one to depict because I had a very serious low in my ping pong days And the big event in table tennis, like in other sports, is the Olympic Games. And I was sort of near my peak as a player in 2000, the Olympic Games in Sydney. And of course, it's a four-year build-up training with that big climax in mind. The preparation was very good. We went out to the Gold Coast. I had sparring partners whose styles mirrored the style of the person I was due to play in my opening match, who was a German called Peter Franz. He was ranked below me in the world. I was expected to win. But the pressure Mm. of the Olympics got to me. It was going out live on BBC One uh, as a huge audience. And I did something which I hadn't done before in my career, particularly, but did do on that occasion, which is I choked. I became paralysed by fear. My hands started trembling and I had a meltdown and lost very, very quickly. So I was out of the Olympics. After a four-year build-up, I was out of the Olympics after a match lasting about 20 minutes. So that was extremely difficult to deal with emotionally and psychologically. And that I definitely would put as my lowest point as a sports person. But of course, failures can be opportunities to learn about why one choked, what one can do differently in the future to ensure that one doesn't choke, how to handle one's emotions, anxieties and adrenaline. But it also... It was very much a Philip to understand my own psychology. About 10 years later, this 
came together in a book, the first book that I wrote called Bounce. And, you know, I wasn't that hopeful for the book when it was first published, but uh, it really struck a chord with people and was a big transitional moment in my career, really, because then book writing and trying to make sense of the world became part of what I did professionally. So the low of Sydney and then what was unquestionably a very a wonderful watershed for me was a publication of Bounce 10 years later. And you're such a brilliant writer that if that hadn't happened, whether you would have written anyway, you just wouldn't have written those books. Well, funnily enough, one of the interesting things about the argument in Bounce is obviously natural talent matters a bit. There's no doubt about that. And I wouldn't want to say that it's completely irrelevant. But I did think back then, and I still think to a certain extent today, it's slightly overrated, that being successful is very multidimensional. There are many different components that are significant. And when I started writing, I was terrible. I started writing for The Times in the build-up to Sydney, writing a sort of diary piece. And those early articles were truly appallingly written. I tried much too hard, you know, too many adjectives. And But when you have a very good mentor, so the sports editor at the time was a guy called David Chappell, and he took a risk on this unknown table tennis player and only wrote once a month. But nevertheless, he thought that there was something in, if not in the writing, at least in the concepts that I was seeking to write about. And he mentored me through. And it took a number of years before I started writing more than once every couple of months. But that was because of great support and the opportunity. And I think that is very significant. I think had that not worked out. If he had said, you know what, first couple of columns, they're not good enough, I don't think I would have become a writer. I think most of us have the potential to be good writers if we get the right sort of encouragement. But now you're four books down, right? So we've got uh, Bounce, Black Box Thinking, You Are Awesome, and now Rebel Ideas as well. So lots of practice since. Exactly, exactly. And I look back on it really as a journey. I mean, Bounce was a very intimidating thing to write. It gets commissioned and you're suddenly writing, instead of a 1,000-word article, you're writing a 100,000-word book. And how you structure that, how you retain the interest of the reader, how you synthesise different bits of research. But I must say, I love writing books. I love the feedback you get from people when you write a book. The third book for children, you are awesome about giving kids the resilience to face up to some of the challenges that are part of life and not to be terrified by making mistakes. That's how we learn, how we improve. The feedback I've had from kids is just, I mean, the handwritten letters that are still coming in. It's a wonderful, hugely uplifting thing to do. Writing a book, people engaging with it, and then seeing that it's made a difference to at least some people. It's a very nice thing. So there was so much that struck me in Rebel Ideas, and I did loads of career tips on it as well. So lots of points that I thought were both inspiring and actionable and important for people. One of the really interesting things right at the beginning of the book is where you talk about the difference between demographic diversity and cognitive diversity. And I wondered if we could just get into what is that difference and that distinction for people and why is it important? So demographic diversity, it's the way we often think about diversity today, the way academics and HR functions, differences in gender and race and social class, religious background and so on. Cognitive diversity is diversity in the way we think, differences in information and perspective and insights and the models 
and heuristics that we implicitly use to make sense of the world around us. Now, I think it's really worth emphasising there's a big overlap between these two concepts because our experiences inform the way we think about the world, the way we filter reality. When you're a parent, you have access to a whole set of experiences that inform the way you think about young people and about how you engage with young people and how you might write a book for young people. So there's an overlap between these two things in most contexts. But it's also worth saying there are some contexts where the overlap is less significant. So, for example, in you know, if I was putting a team together to design an aircraft engine, the fact that I'm mixed race, you know, half Pakistani, half Welsh, which is an unusual combination, but that set of experiences I have of being half Welsh, which might be relevant in very many contexts, isn't going to be that relevant for deciding how tweaking the design of the engine might improve its aerodynamism. So one of the points in the book that I try to make is that we mustn't reduce diversity to a box-ticking exercise. It's a lot more sophisticated than that, but it also has extremely counterintuitive power. When you get the diversity right and you think about it in the right way, you get this very surprising uplift in collective intelligence in human teams and in organisations. What's going through my mind is getting that contextually relevant cognitive diversity is hard, right? So the tick box might not be right, but it's easy. But A, I've got to be able to work out what cognitive diversity looks like. So maybe I've got to be able to assess for that in some way. And then I've got to make it situationally or contextually relevant and match that diversity. That I mean, that's a really difficult thing for organisations, leaders, HR departments to do. I mean, so you've, I, I think you've really described it well, really, really well. It isn't easy to do. But the reason it's important to do is because it has such counterintuitive power. To go to the example of just thinking about it in demographic terms, I mean, you'll have seen that you can go to professional services companies that look diverse because they're demographically diverse, a senior leadership team. And yet when you talk to them, they've been at the organisation so long that they think in exactly the same way. They use the same metaphors, the same historical examples to reason through problems. And so as an outsider, you can see there's a disruption coming that might hit them, but they can't see it because they share the same blind spots. They share the same templates. That's a disaster for an organisation. So you're right, you need to find the diversity that is contextually relevant for the organisation. Football's a good example, but, you know, Philip Neville is the England women's football coach and Gareth Southgate is the England men's team coach. And I sit on a group that advises them, like a senior leadership group. But it's an interesting group because there's a guy called Manoj Bedali, who's a British-Asian high-tech startup guy. Lucy Giles, who's the head of the Sandhurst Military Training Academy. Dave Brailsford, who's a cycling coach. Sue Campbell, who's an expert in Olympic sports. So it's a very eclectic group. And at the beginning, I remember football journalists saying, what's the point of having this group advising on football? Because Harry Redknapp's a very well-known football coach, and he knows more about football than Manoj Badali, or Tony Pulis knows, has forgotten more about football than Lucy Giles. And that's true. But the problem is, if Southgate and Neville were being advised by Pulis, Redknapp and others of that kind, they would be advised by people with huge amounts of knowledge about football. But Southgate and Neville already know what they know. 
they were socialised into the basic assumptions of English football, a way of playing, a way of setting up tactically, a way of recovering about diet. And so they'd be agreeing all the time, becoming more confident about assumptions that might be incomplete or possibly flawed. What's interesting about this group is when Brailsford says something about how big data sets in cycling improve diet. That's something that no one else in the room knew. You're suddenly having divergent thinking, the cross-pollination of ideas. That's when you get this uplift in collective intelligence. So that diverse group is very useful for football. But if we were advising on how to design a hadron collider, you'd have a group of diverse (laughs) perspectives that wouldn't impinge upon the problem. So what I do in, in Rebel Ideas is I imagine the universe of useful ideas for a given problem. You want people whose perspectives as it were, have coverage across that space, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily coverage outside that space. And so the point you're making is absolutely the pertinent one, which is how do we optimise for the problem? And that takes a bit of thought. Okay, okay. So I think I would love to get into optimising for the problem and also sort of optimising for the person because I was trying to think about how do I distill this brilliant book into a uh, relatively short podcast for people to help them with their careers. And I thought that we could take the concept of cognitive diversity which has you know benefits for individuals, benefits for organisations, and think maybe at three levels, at the level of the individual, at the level of a team, at the level of an organisation, and think about what practically can we do at those different levels to increase cognitive diversity? So if we start with the individual then and their own cognitive diversity, one of the things in the book I highlighted and, you know, turned a corner down because I am that person who turns corners down in books, um, was this whole thing about blind spots and perspective blindness. And I took to that as like, the you know, it's difficult for an individual to see out of their own frame of reference. And I can imagine that doesn't help them (laughs) with their cognitive diversity if they think that what they know is what they need to know and that that's right and that's enough. I guess maybe if any of those concepts sort of spark anything um, in you or particularly in terms of what an individual could do to increase their cognitive diversity? So I think the key thing is to realise that we have an unconscious tendency to want to spend time with people who think just like us. So this unconscious tendency means that we surround ourselves on the internet, in our places of work, with people who think like us. And that shuts down our ability to think expansively about ourselves, about our careers, about the problems we're trying to solve. Being aware of that bias is terribly important. There's a great experiment by two American researchers where they organise an evening where people get a chance to broaden their social networks. And they convene this meeting with a room designed to facilitate interaction. There was one wall was full of hors d'oeuvres, there were drinks, beer and champagne and soft drinks being served. And everyone was fitted up with a sociometric badge so that they could figure out who was talking to who through the course of the evening. And most of the people in the room, I think they made sure that everyone in the room knew about 20% of the people there or 10% of the people there, but they didn't know 80 to 90%. They also knew from a pre-mixer questionnaire that everyone was going precisely so that they could broaden their networks. They could meet new people. They could find out new ideas. (laughs) And, of course, everyone spent the entire (laughs) evening talking to people that they already knew. And it was only after they realised they'd completely sabotaged their own objectives. So... One practical tip, people with broad and diverse networks 
have so much more success in having successful squiggly careers because they're able to draw on a much more diverse set of insights than they otherwise would. These people also are people who often have quite a giving attitude. By giving to people, they're able to draw on those people. And in a complex world, that capacity to build diverse networks often hinges on having a giving rather than a taking attitude. People who are kind and also socially intelligent, so they cut off people who are constantly freeloading, they're the ones who I think are going to win. And it's partly to do with diversity and partly to do with kindness. So at an individual level, people should look at how much they're giving. What and how much are you giving to help support develop, enhance other people's knowledge, all that kind of stuff. Um, and make sure that you are spending time with people not just like you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So at a team level then, so if we're thinking about cognitive diversity at a team level, and this might be for sort of managers as well, well, what do you think practices or activities that teams could put in place to increase the cognitive diversity within a team? So good, uh, I mean, there's lots of different ways to do this, but one thing that we've done quite effectively is we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know. But we have sometimes some tenuous sense of what we don't know. We have a tenuous sense that there may be a voice that could add something to my existing level of knowledge. So suppose so you've got a senior leadership team. One way to come up with creative ideas, a very well-established technique, is called brainstorming. One of the problems with brainstorming, in a, particularly in a hierarchical group, is that as soon as the leader expresses an idea, people unconsciously converge upon that idea and start riffering around the edges of it. A better technique is brain writing, where people write down ideas. 
And that means that people don't know who has suggested the idea. You separate the quality of the idea from the status of the person who suggested it. So it creates a meritocracy of ideas. You post them on a board, you vote on them, take them to the next level. A lot of research shows that you get better quality of ideas as well as more creative ideas with that technique. But I suggest that a senior leadership team, they do brain writing, but not on coming up with ideas, but for coming up with who is not currently on this team who could be on this team. And write down three different types of person and then vote on them. We found organizations that do this suddenly start identifying the gaps in their collective perspective. And they're inviting new people to refresh the team, to add that piece of the jigsaw they might not currently have had. The best example from the book is Bletchley Park, the team that cracked the enigma. They managed to find some key voices to add to those of Alan Turing and the other great mathematicians, without whom they could never have cracked the enigma. They were early adopters of cognitive diversity, and you get that right. I mean, I go into some of the, the statistics in the book, some of the the measurable uplifts in collective intelligence you get from this approach, and it, and it is quite significant. And I don't actually don't know whether this fits in between the individual or the team level. I think it could sit at either level as an action. But something that a manager of mine, who I often mention on the podcast because he was so good, and he probably still is, I just don't work for him now. His name is Phil Gilbert, and I used to work for him in an innovation team at Eon. One of the things that I was charged with in that role was developing six to eight new product launches a year. I think at that stage in my career, I wanted them all to do well. And I was very protective over my ideas. You know, if anyone criticised them, I probably got a bit defensive. One of the things that he taught me to do was have these challenge and build sessions. And I've always found it an action and a language that has really helped me to invite other people's perspectives. So... Before I had that as a framing, I would go into a session with a senior stakeholder in another department and they would tell me ways in which they thought my idea might not work or couldn't be applied. And I would think it was like chinks in my armour. Each one of those things I'd be thinking are taking very personally, basically, and trying to defend my brilliant idea. And he said, oh, you know, go into it with that person, call the meeting a challenge and build meeting. The whole aim of it is for that person to challenge your ideas and to make it better that both frames it into them that it's more than critique but it also frames it into you and that's what you know to accept and I've found it to be such a valuable way of me being okay to invite lots and lots of different perspectives and not getting defensive about it and recognizing that it does ultimately make it more considered or a different idea or a better idea that's something that's helped me individually and I've done it in as as a leader of teams as well. Oh, I love that. I I couldn't agree more. I agreed with everything you said. I think that's so important that we see other people's ideas as potential contributors to improving our own. It's so easy to become defensive about our own ideas. If a leader is defensive about their own ideas, that's particularly dangerous because it means that people will unconsciously corroborate what they're saying, which means that effectively you're shrinking the intelligence of the group to just the brain of the leader. People unconsciously begin to say what they think the leader wants to hear rather than what they genuinely think might be the flaws or the difficulties or ways that it can be improved. It's a classic problem. I mean, hierarchies are a classic way of shutting down collective intelligence. You need a hierarchy, but very steep hierarchies run by very dominant and quite egotistical leaders, that's extremely dangerous, I think, for organisations. 
It makes me think about um, Amy Edmondson's work over at Harvard when she looks at psychological safety and she says organisations, about at least 50% of people are afraid to speak up and actually you need high levels of psychological safety probably to enable these challenge and build people to feel comfortable bringing in different perspectives or disagreeing and that's got to be part of the culture. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, and I, So, I mean, I think there's sort of two different things, isn't it? You want to get diverse voices in the room and then you need a culture where those diverse voices are expressed in the service of coming up with the right solutions. I think leaders should say, you know what, I still need to make a decision. But that decision is going to be much better, much stronger if I've actually heard the views of the people who I've invited to this meeting. Otherwise, what's the point of having them? If the problem is a simple one, the meeting or the forum or the sharing of ideas is redundant. If it's a complex problem, that's the whole purpose that you're bringing these diverse voices together, then it makes sense to hear them before the decision mm. is taken. So that's definitely getting us to that last area of the organisation then when we're talking about leadership and culture. And I guess one of the things that in my mind that I'm thinking about as, as well as an organisation level is about recruiting for cognitive diversity as well and how you do that and how hard that is, but also how valuable that is. What do you think that organisations should be doing at that sort of very highest level, cultural level, to increase cognitive diversity? Yeah, so the key thing is often one thinks of talent on an individual by individual basis. Suppose you were trying to come up with, I mean, just to make it as simple as possible, you wanted to put a team of 10 people together to come up with ideas for the future five years of a business. And let's say you're a brilliant talent spotter and you find 10 people who are genuinely good at coming up with creative ideas. And each one of them comes up with 10 genuinely brilliant ideas. So you've got 10 people in the team, each one of whom has come up with 10 genuinely brilliant ideas. How many brilliant ideas in total? 10 times 10, it's 100. Yeah. <laughs> but if these people think in the same way and they come up with the same ideas as one another, you've only got 10. If they're cognitively diverse and come up with different ideas from one another, you could have 100. These are two teams, two organisations comprised of individuals of equal talent. But one of the teams is almost a 1,000% more creative. If the HR function looks at talent individual by individual, they will be befuddled as to this stark difference. It's only by taking a step back and looking at the whole, the holistic, how people meaningfully differ from each other, you'll begin to glimpse why certain teams become so creative. Because the way we solve problems is collectively. And collective mm -hmm. intelligence has two components, the individual ability of its members and their diversity. And if you get that second bit right, that's going to be, for me, the big differentiator in years to come. But what Bletchley Park did so well is they had Turing, great mathematician. They had Peter Twig. They had these brilliant number crunches. But they also had Stanley Sedgwick, who was a lowly bank clerk, worked in the city. He would, and he played the Daily Telegraph crossword on his daily commute. He was a brilliant crossword player. And it turns out that crossword players bring something of massive significance to code-breaking. MI6 knew this. They were early adopters of cognitive diversity and there was a crossword competition. Sedgwick excelled. They brought him to Bletchley Park in Hut 10. And what they're good at doing, long story short, is they're very good at quasi-mind reading. They can get in the minds of other people because you need to do that as a crossword solve. You need to... There's only, each national newspaper has only about five crossword setters. From the first one or two clues, they can identify the setter. And that's what you need in code breaking too. You need to get in the mind of the operator, what kind of patterns of letters they use. And so Sedgwick was fundamental to it. 
And that's what MI6 got. They didn't. They had also more than 50% of the people at Bletchley Park were women. They had cultural historians, they had linguists, they had philosophers. J.R. Tolkien was one of the early people. I mean, he didn't actually end up in Bletchley Park, but he was one of the um, identifiable recruits. When you get that right, it can make a massive, massive difference. I think it speaks to a partnership between maybe the hiring managers and HR. So it's not just I have a gap that needs to be filled. It's the gap in the context of the team, the department and the business, perhaps. And that's the bit for uh, HR to partner with. So maybe just to recap then in terms of the three areas, we talked about um, individuals. And one of the things that individuals could do is particularly think about giving and in their career that kind of outlasts the taking and supports them in their career. We talked about teams and that really interesting practice of brain writing, but specifically for spotting using brain writing to spot perspectives and thoughts and points of view that you might not have in the team at the moment and then we talked then about an organizational level this idea of looking cohesively and comprehensively at the organization not just at the individual spots that need filling it makes me wish like my organization's quite small obviously we work with lots of organizations but it sort of makes me want to be back in microsoft moving all these pieces of the cognitive diverse puzzle and putting all this stuff into practice and i really hope that it inspires and enables other people to do that in their businesses as well because my guinea pig is mainly my business partner and (laughs) I think she's going to get very cross if I do all of this with her on one day after I've spoken to you Matthew. So thank you so much for your time. There's lots of areas that we've not covered that I found really fascinating in the book, particularly around debate. I think that was something that really, really struck with me and kind of what happens with debate. So I would recommend to everybody to pick up Rebel Ideas. It is out now in paperback, which is exciting. Interesting time to sell a book, but go get that from wherever you get, you know, your online bookstores or Amazon or wherever you prefer to get your books from. Rebel Ideas is there now. Um, Matthew, where else can people go to find out more about you and your work? Oh, if you Google my name, Matthew Side, my website, which is matthewside.co.uk, and the book Rebel Ideas, as you say. And I thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I've enjoyed it. It's been a joy to take part. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 